Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together, to have fellowship, and to open your word, to know the thoughts that you've thought, and to understand the words that you've spoken and intend for us to hear and understand. I pray that your blessing would come tonight. Uh, Lord, I recognize that I'm not worthy to open this book that you've written to share with it the thoughts that, um, that you've you've spoken to us. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me and speak above me and beyond what I've prepared, and that um, by your Holy Spirit tonight, that you would be glorified in all of the things that are said and done, Lord. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Am I, is my, do I need to adjust this? Am I hearing some popping because of it? I've, I just moved it a little bit. Anyways, so um, before I chose a really lofty theme, you hear that, um, for this message, um, and we'll get to it, but I really want to cover Second Peter 1, because I think this is where um, God led me to think upon, and um, I definitely won't get through all of my slides today, um, which is fine. That's not the goal, to get through slides. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So, um, I better not touch it now. So, we'll try that. Okay, so, Second Peter chapter 1. So, this is from Peter, Simon Peter, um, the most fiery, I guess, kind of the spokesperson of all the disciples, and the guy who denied Jesus and was restored. Um, so you know Peter, and he, in verses 1 and 2, he has his greeting, um, and then in verse 3, we'll pick it up, and it says, according as his divine power hath given us unto, a, all, uh, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So that's just saying, like, we have everything we need to live a godly and a, a right spiritual life. We have all the necessities for spiritual life provided for us um, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So we have a calling and we also have the means of following that calling um, by, by the person of Jesus. That's verse three. Wherefore um, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse 4. So, um, we have these promises that are really important too, and I thought the opening song today was very appropriate, because what I want to talk to you about is, we'll get to it at the end of this chapter, um, but it's the word of God, and it's the promises of God, and the glory of God, but um, mostly focusing on, on um, the record of the scriptures themselves and how they record visions of the, of the glory of God. And um, so these promises are, are important as well. And besides this, uh, we'll continue. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue and virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and patience godliness and godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, 
and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So I just, I really like this chapter. That's why I'm reading the whole thing. And because these are more valuable words than my words, um, I'm not trying to cop out of preparing a message with, you know, three points that all start with the letter F, and then there's a poem or a song at the end. Like, I understand um, proper homiletics. I understand <laughs> that you can make a well-formed half hour, and um, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I really think that's true, where um, any of you pretty much, well, any of you men could be up here now, or if the men weren't present, then the women could come up here and they could say lots of valuable things. Um, but I want to go through God's word with you and um, point out things that I find treasures, like verse 10, um, which is pointed out to me, just as we spend time together in fellowship in God's word. Um, it's, not, it's not, the goal isn't that I have some kind of lofty knowledge that I'm going to bring down and give to you, that, that would be kind of silly. So, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling election sure, for if you do these things you shall never fall. It comes to like the best of us, I guess if I can say that, um, where we doubt our salvation. I think almost everyone at some point um, has doubts as to the legitimacy of when they're saved. I mean, Definitely younger people and who are newer Christians tend to think this more, but I've also heard mature people who've been in the church, who grew up in the church, um, say such things. So no one's immune, I don't think, to doubts. But Peter gives us very useful advice. If you're doing these things diligently, um, and he, we had a big list of them, you know, um, adding to your faith, virtue. Remember, we need faith first. We can add on to a virtue. You can imagine a pyramid structure where faith is the biggest and most basic block, and on top virtue, and on top knowledge, and on top temperance, and on top patience, and then godliness, and brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness love towards everyone. So anyone who, who's practicing these things, if you're actually trying to daily live out your Christian spiritual life, you probably won't be able to spend time doubting your salvation. You won't have time for it, really, because it's a lot of work to show love to everyone that you meet. Um, and so this is, I, I love how Peter um, has composed this book of Second Peter, and uh, it's kind of become one of my favorite books to read for for a number of reasons, but one of it is like, it's got this remarkable structure and this flowing thought, because remember in um, verse three, we were talking about, um, verse three and four, we were talking about partaking of the divine nature and we were talking about being called to glory and virtue and we were being talking about having all the things that we need in order to live a spiritual life. And so I just love Peter's words and how he's showing us all these things how in order to not get to the point, backsliding, I guess, where you're doubting your salvation, 
happens to me, but um, at least I can return to this and say, all right, where do I start? Well, I got to start, how do I start conforming to Christ? Well, he gives us one of many lists of things that we want these qualities. Um, For so an entrance, verse 11, shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, you know them, you're my peers and equals and people who know more about me also, um, about such things, valuable things to say also, but my goal today is to just remind you of the God you serve by going through his word and see a few things, just to observe, basically. Though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Established. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So Peter thought this was valuable enough of an activity so that as long as he's living, which in the next verse we find out is not for a lot longer, um, but to stir up his fellow Christians by putting them in remembrance of the promises of God and of the scriptures. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. So Peter was to be executed soon. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. That's why he's writing the book, or the epistle, I guess I should call it. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So cunningly devised fables. There's a lot of apostasy out in the world. It's not hard to find people who believe wrong things, and they're the most vocal and the most wealthy and the kind of most, they have the most bright lights, I guess. So um, they draw crowds, and and it's sad because um, people are being deceived by Uh, false shepherds and false teachers and um, we need to be aware that um, they're preaching a different gospel and these cunningly devised fables and also the philosophies of man so many people are lost and don't know what to think uh, or what to believe because there's just so much out there and it takes a lot of energy and effort to just talk about it. it would take quite a while just to come to some kind of um, thinking clearly and come to a conclusion, anyone, basically. But um, we know that from the testimony and from the eyewitnesses of Peter and the disciples and from the testimony of our brothers and sisters and from seeing things in reality, um, but we tend to be forgetful. I tend to be forgetful, um, but it's important to remember eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, for He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before him, with, and he was with James and John, which we will talk about. For he received, verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, where, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Okay, so the more sure word of prophecy compared to the Mount of Transfiguration is coming. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light 
that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So this is all just a chapter I love that I wanted to go through as kind of a prelude, a, a precur precursor or whatever, um, to the message, because it hits on all these wonderful themes that I think um, were appropriate. It seemed so fitting that I just decided that it would be valuable to go through it. And um, so this more sure word of prophecy, like it's better than someone's eyewitness testimony because it's multiple prophets over a long period of time and they couldn't have made it up and it's got its own, it's God's testimony, it's got a stronger testimony, Peter says, than his own voice saying, I saw it, I climbed the mountain with Jesus, he, his raiment became white as the sun and his face shone and there was a voice from heaven. That's good, but we have a written book and we can hold it in our hands. And so what I want to do is go through the Bible with as much as I can go through in the next 15 minutes. And if I can't go through all of it, it's fine. It, it's not, the goal isn't to get through all the slides, but just to show you something about theophanies and visions of glory throughout the Bible. So a theophany is kind of a technical word, I guess you can say. It's a theology term. Definition, a visible manifestation to humankind of God. I put God there because obviously we are Christians in a church. We're talking about the one true God, the living God, Jehovah, the God of the Jews, and, well, <laughs> the God who made the Jews who they are, but um, you know what I mean, basically. Um, but the definition technically is of just deity. So we are probably the only, one of the only people really trying to use this word, and so it's going to mean God, God. But um, there's the Greek. I find that if you look at Greek and you just think about it, you can eventually kind of read Greek, because if you do math, you get familiar with symbols like theta. There's a theta at the beginning there. Thea, and then there's a phi there, thea, and all the V's are Y's, or all the N's are V's now, theophania, right? <laughs> like, you know, if, if you do it enough, it just kind of happens, I find. So there's theophania, you can look at it and say theophania. Uh, <laughs> um, and theos is the word for deity. We're always talking about God, but if someone was talking about, in general terms, God, like lowercase g, they would use the same, theos. Um, and then phania, you can think of like fan of the opera, like, like hey, um, appearing. So the appearances of God, visions and tangible appearances, just a few, can't cover them all, not possible um, in a short time. That's what we're talking about, theophanies. So pop quiz, based on the word theophany, what is a Christophany? Appearance of Christ. Exactly. That would be an appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God because once he incarnated and became Jesus, then we just call him Jesus <laughs> uh, after that point. And so just a little um, word, a side word, like I made this chart because this is like how I find Bible study goes. And really, if I could draw a red circle around, I'll do a, 
like a classic kind of David Hansen move, observation. <laughs> really, we're focusing on observations today. Um, I don't have really the gumption or time to talk about interpretation or application, which are, they have their own um, techniques or whatever tools. Really, we're just talking about observing the Word of God, which brings its own blessing, by the way. You don't have to understand every single thing you read because you'd have to be an expert in Middle East culture in order to really understand everything. But we can get so far with observation, which tends to make us go into interpretations, which tends to hopefully make us apply it to our lives. And as we become more and more Christ-like, we tend to observe the, the scriptures more, and then it's kind of like a positive cycle. So kind of, it's like pulling the ripcord on a lawnmower, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and then it's going to eventually go, and you're going to be able to cut your grass. So um, observation is good because it helps get the cycle started. So um, what we want to pay attention for when we're doing observation is these things, culture, grammar, history, geography, context, like biblical context, near and far. So Second Peter 1 would be the far context of kind of all of the passages I'm talking about because um, he talks about pretty much the promises of God and the scriptures almost as a whole. But yeah, so that's the far context. We'll look at near contexts too. And then facts and details basically. We're just, this is just like read your textbook, do your homework, like observe the material kind of thing. All right. So this is my last aside before we start looking at actual scriptures, and I have 10 minutes left, so we'll, I'll probably just continue the next time I continue. Um, so mountain vistas, like, you know, you do all this hard work, um, climb to the top of a mountain, and you get the benefit of a beautiful view. So mountain vistas, we're talking about first Horeb and Sinai. This is purely just information and geography so that you have some kind of ability to frame it. So... This is probably one geological area, we can say for sure, um, or perhaps even the same mountain, perhaps the same mountain range. And we can kind of come to that conclusion based on Gen Exodus 33, verse 6, and Exodus 34, verse 2. They're really close together in your Bible. They're one page apart. And they refer to Horeb and then Sinai. And there's lots of stuff in the Bible where we can pretty, be pretty confident that they're the same. So that's just something for you to know. So where was, is, the real mountain Sinai? People don't know, really. Like, this area here, that is the Sinai Peninsula, right? That's in Egypt. There's the border of Egypt between Egypt and Israel. Um, this would be known as Edom, or Mount Seir, uh, which is where the sons of Esau settled. Um, some people think it even could be there, like it's a local claim kind of thing. And then over here in Saudi Arabia is another potential candidate, which I think is kind of the one. Now, I don't really think anyone pays much attention to the land of Edom being where, where Sinai is. It just doesn't really match up with the biblical account. So it would probably be either in this range, this is all bumpy if you could see it, but that's where St. Catherine, which is a mountain, is, and they have a monastery there. And right by it is the actual Mount Sinai with the word Sinai, you know, like it's named Mount Sinai today. 
um, isn't right next to St. Catherine. And then over here is Mount, the Mount of Al Almonds, so Almond Mountain or whatever, um, and that's in Saudi Arabia. So I'd say between those, if you were to look into it, if you just got for some reason an interest in the Exodus journey, you would probably conclude it was somewhere around here, which is still a big area. Um, someone online basically took the trouble of trying to figure out what they thought the trip from Goshen to Sinai would look like. Remember, the goal was to get the people of Israel out of enslavement in Egypt, take them from there and move them and put them in Canaan, the promised land. That's like a few days walk if you're going straight, but they went down and then they crossed the Red Sea, and then they went up. And that was for God to take them through 40 years of this big journey that he had for them. But this is where some, someone uh, has proposed that this is the route, and it's plausible for a number of reasons. Um, doesn't really matter um, in terms of w what the truth is, because someone's right, we know God is right, ultimately, and we'll find out someday and this is just kind of one um, plausible theory. I kind of agree with it. So here's a picture. Well, um, this ending mountain, which is marked Sinai, is actually um, the Mount of Almonds, Mountain of Almonds, um, Jabal al-Laz, in Saudi Arabia, which I find a plausible, it's a plausible mountain to me. Um, so it's uh, listed as an ultra-prominent mountain, so it has more than 1,500 meters prominence from the surrounding uh, area. There's lots of ultra-mountains, but this is one. And interesting, um, nearby on Google Maps, you can see this thing, and I can give you the coordinates to see this thing in uh, Google Maps, and I can't say what it is or, or anything, I'm not a geologist, but um, I just thought it was interesting, and it made me think, like, huh, when things like Exodus 17:6 say, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This is just a dark spot in a big, dry area. It could just be nothing, I don't know, but... Um, it's just encouraging to think that these facts, these things actually happened, and they are true events. And by the way, this counts as a theophany or Christophany. Technically, all Christophanies are theophanies because Christ is God. Um, he is deity. But it says, I will stand before thee. And I believe it's God speaking in that passage. But yeah. So. And then the mountain of transfiguration. We can go through this whole rigmarole again. Where is it? Which mountain? Um, basically, in Matthew 16, it says the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. And then the next chapter is where the mount of transfiguration takes place. So the context favors Mount Hermon. Here's a picture of Mount Hermon, kind of at an angle on Google Earth. And that pinpoint is where Caesarea Philippi would have been. And um, it is also an ultra-prominence mountain. And there it is on the map. And other people think Mount Tabor, that's kind of like the traditional um, place, which is down to the left of the Sea of Galilee, um, south and left a little bit down in there. But I believe, could be wrong. But anyways, that's where Mount Hermon is. So that's where I would think that um, Mount Hermon is the Mount of Transfiguration. So 
Now is just a long series of observations and scriptures, which really, since I know you know the scriptures very well, um, so, well, I, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> at this point, you know, you've probably heard it all. So, I just, at the beginning, I have to put in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, because it's the first time we see God, and the first time anything happens is always significant. So, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. I keep asking people, what is the astrological basis for a seven-day week? We know a 365-day trip around the sun, that's okay. Uh, we know months are kind of lunar uh, or whatever they are. Um, but a seven-day week, no, it's a tradition. Um, it's a tradition from the Middle East. It's a tradition of the Jews. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. These are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's an interesting heavens and earth and earth and heavens. There's kind of like a structure to that verse. Um, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now that word mist, it could just mean dew or whatever. Um, but I always kind of think of the cloud of God, kind of like he's taking care of the earth. God is the gardener at this point of the whole earth as a whole until he puts man in it. Uh, which would have been, I guess, on the same, on the sixth day. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight for, and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes people have a problem where they don't like in the garden how God seems to be withholding um, the knowledge of good and evil because he says, don't eat this fruit, it'll make you die. But he also gave us free will to eat the fruit and he put the fruit within reach, so he didn't withhold it, he just told us what was true. If you eat the fruit, you'll die. It's just kind of a causality thing, you know, if you punch the thing, it'll fall over, right? Um, but that's not a valid, really, um, dispute. So I, this is a very personal, to me, a very personal account of how Jehovah Elohim um, is creating all of these things and with man. So it's not really like glorious in how the rest of them are, but I had to put it there because it's the first one and it's just, it sets the tone for the whole Bible. You know, God creates this nice garden, puts man in it, and then things go downhill from there. Um, and I won't fast forward through everything because that would be not very nice because there's all these scriptures prepared and they're really cool. And um, uh, I'm gonna keep going until the last minute here. Um, <laughs> okay, and they heard, and this is after they eat the fruit. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? 
So this is, this is framing the rest of the scriptures to me, because it's the beginning. Now, this observation, so I can just fast forward. Well, the words themselves are really cool. I just love to read the scriptures and hear um, what they say, like details. But um, I won't read this verbatim, but I'll just remind you. In Exodus 3, Moses meets God in the holy mountain, Horeb, um, while he's tending the sheep. And God shows himself to Moses and tells him he's going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, certainly I'll be with thee. Um, and this is where we get this very significant statement, I am that I am, that God is the self-existent one. And it's the burning bush. And by the way, this is, I'm kind of cheating because in verse 2 it says, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of Jehovah. So I think that's a Christophany rather than a theophany. If you want to, you know, split hairs over it. Um, this is Jesus who's in this burning bush and he's consumed, but he's not being consumed, which is really kind of cool. It's a type. Um, so I am that I am. So another observation. These are kind of mountaintop experiences for the prophets for the people of God. And so this is when the children of Israel, they've come out of the Red Sea experience. They've split, God has split the water. They've made this long journey. And they're in the wilderness of Sinai. They go to Rephidim in the desert of Sinai. They make a camp. And um, God says, you've seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. This is the, the if, the conditional covenant of uh, Mount Sinai, of the, the law, basically, is coming. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so there's this like huge, Moses goes up, he talks to God, he comes down, he gets what God says, he goes down, he talks to the people. The people are saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses is like, okay. Goes back up. He says, okay, God, this is what they said. And God says, okay. So I come to the, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm going to come visit you on this mountain. I'm going to show you my glory. And so Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. So Moses goes down and says, okay, God's going to show, show himself to us in a cloud. And there's this distance. It's like, God, where art thou, Adam? You know, like, Moses is going down and up, and Moses is the only guy who seems to be able to talk to God at all. And we read about this problem that the Israelites have, and, and so they sanctify themselves, because, and they wash their clothes, and they're making ready against the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. And so they're getting ready to meet God. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning, and that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. So this is the biggest thunderstorm you've ever heard, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. I mean, sounds like a trumpet. Um, and everyone is afraid and trembling, because the loving God, El Shaddai, you know, the Almighty One, is coming in a cloud, and it makes sense that they would tremble and be afraid, but this is the same God that um, put man in a garden so that God, he, man could name the animals and care for the garden and have a relationship with God when he's walking in the cool of the evening. 
um, I'm pointing out that we somehow we've lost um, that un unconfirmed innocence, and now um, the Israelites are like you and I, and like we are in our daily walk, where we have these things that keep us from experiencing the Old Testament God of the Jews in all his glory. Um, and that helps us to appreciate Christ more because we know we don't have to go through, we don't need a Moses, we can pray to God directly. So, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke, so it <laughs> because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by, answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai in the top of the mount, and the Lord, go, go, uh, the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So if they went up and just went to look and see what's going on up here, they would die. And so we have serious barriers between God and the people, between God's glory and his chosen people. Um, forget the rest of the world, forget Egypt and all the other lost people. We're talking about God and the people from Abraham that he chose. This is still a long distance. And let the priests sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. So that would be bad too if God came down the mountain or if the people went up. Either way, the people die. Um, and Moses said, the people can't come up because you told us not to. And yeah, so this is basically the end of that theophany, that vision. And... There's all kinds of fascinating, interesting, wonderful details that um, you can go into. And so then from Exodus 19 to 24, the law is given. So God basically talks to Moses, says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. So the basic terms of this relationship between the Israelites and God. And then after that, the design of the tabernacle is given. All right, there's going to be an ark, there's going to be uh, table, it's all going to be shittim wood covered in gold. All right, so Moses is up there for a long time because God's got a lot of th terms here to try and make this thing happen. And then Exodus 32 happens, which you may perhaps remember and know that the Israelite Moses was um, up there for like 40 days and nights, and then they made a calf of gold, and Aaron took all the gold from the people, and then they made a calf, an idol, and they worshiped it. So God is actually on this mountain talking to Moses. He's like there, no one's moved, and the people are f within 40 days forgetting that or just 40 days ago, one month ago and a little more, um, there was a thunderstorm and the sound of trumpets and the whole mountain was like on fire and they've forgotten so quickly. And unfortunately, that's me. When we have these, when I have these mountaintop experiences, it doesn't inoculate me against idolatry. It doesn't inoculate me against backsliding. It doesn't inoculate me of being forgetful. Um, what it does is probably the opposite. Gives me a false confidence that, ah, oh, I've had an emotional hiccup. We sang a really nice song on Sunday. 
and I almost cried. So I'm probably good for the week. I don't think I need to, you know, walk with God in the cool of the evening, kind of have this personal, intimate relationship with God where we can be friends almost as I dare to use that term. Um, but, you know, trying to rely on the mountaintop experiences is a bad idea, and I'm sure you know that from experience. Um, so that's just one thought that comes out of observation. I skipped interpretation maybe, I don't know, just went right to an application, but I didn't plan that. All I want to do is observe more scriptures because I just love to observe the scriptures. I just want to go through <laughs> all these things and um, it'll have to be another time because I have to respect the boundaries of the clock. So um, tonight I'll have to close in prayer and um, I'll read these passages over and over and over again. And next time um, we can go through them and just fellowship in God's word again. And the next time I'm here in an evening service, um, if you would be happy to come and just read God's word and enjoy it, you could do it at home, but uh, I wouldn't be there. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> neither would Sam or, well, you know what I mean. We wouldn't be together. So um, yeah, that's good. So uh, let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this more sure word that you've given us, that we can go through the whole Bible, that we can hold from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. We can know your thoughts. We can know your complete declaration on what this whole um, of creation is about. It's about your glory, God, and um, we appreciate that fact and that um, infinitely many sermons, I guess, will be spoken, infinitely many songs will be sung about your glory in heaven, and um, this topic could never be exhausted because uh, we will only learn more and more about the wonderfulness of who you are and the amazement that we will have as we behold your glory. Um, Father, please put us in a state of remembrance and not in a state of confidence, but rather that we should humbly be in remembrance of the word of God as we walk through our lives this week. By your Holy Spirit, please Keep us from evil and help us to um, continually think upon the Lord Jesus and how we can be further conformed to him and to his nature and to his person. And I pray that you would accomplish the thing that you've set out to do and that you would not cease your work that you've begun in us and that you would be uh, with us as we walk and that we would be looking to you and not be lost um, and that you'd have to ask, where are you? I uh, pray, Lord, for a relationship with you, ever deepening. And I uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.